Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Adrian Celeste Salinas was born on November 5, 1993, and was described by friends as one of the nicest, sweetest people they'd ever met. They also said Adrian was a very responsible and motivated young woman who dreamed of becoming a journalist. 19-year-old Adrian was a student at Gateway Community College and had plans to attend Arizona State University. Adrian was living with two roommates in an apartment on South Hardy Drive in West 5th Street in Tempe, Arizona. She had a job, but she wasn't able to work for a while because she had undergone lung surgery to treat valley fever, which is a fungal disease that mostly affects people in Arizona and California. On June 14, 2013, Adrian hosted a birthday party of around 40 guests for a friend at her apartment. But the party wasn't going the way Adrian had hoped, and she was upset that her boyfriend, Francisco, friend, Ortega, was showing interest in other women at the party. After getting into an argument about it, Adrian and Fran left with plans to head to his home in Scottsdale. Adrian initially planned to ride with him, but then decided she would drive herself. So she went back into the apartment, packed a bag, and left her apartment once again. Some guests noticed that she had been drinking and wasn't fit to drive, but they were unable to stop her because she was already in her car and driving away. Then, soon after, at 3.45 a.m., a witness called 911 and said a woman had been speeding and driving erratically when she drove her car over the median on the corner of Rio Salado and Ash Avenue, which had caused two flat tires. Even with the two flat tires, she managed to drive the car to Brown Street, where she parked it and walked the short distance back to her apartment. She then briefly spoke to one of her roommates and then left again at 4 a.m., leaving her purse and keys at her apartment. She then called for a cab to pick her up at the AMPM, which is a convenience store in the neighborhood, and began walking that way. The cab driver arrived at the store at 4.53 a.m., but couldn't find Adrian. She apparently never made it on foot, although it's unclear why she would arrange the taxi to pick her up at the convenience store instead of her apartment. Some speculate that she had no cash on her and was making her way to an ATM to get some before getting in the taxi. At 5.07 a.m., 14 minutes after the final call with the cab driver, her phone shut off. Surveillance cameras caught a woman resembling Adrian walking in J.C. Park the night she went missing. The next day, Father's Day, her father Rick Salinas thought it was strange that he didn't hear from her so he decided to go out searching for her. 
That's when he found her Mercury Sable, abandoned with the two flat tires, and then reported her missing. Police stated Adrian likely disappeared while walking on Hardy Drive between 5th Street and University Drive. She was seen on footage walking through an O'Reilly Auto Parts parking lot at 4.52 a.m. In the footage, it appears a dark four-door vehicle is following her as it can be seen driving through the same lot approximately two minutes later. To this day, that car remains unidentified. Cell phone records show that Adrian had attempted to call friend around 11 times at 4.15 a.m. and had left a voicemail saying she was on her way to his home. In July 2013, hard rainfall turned normally bone-dry Arizona canals, washes, and riverbeds into raging rivers of mud. On August 9, 2013, an Apache Junction resident decided to check his property, which borders Lost Dutchman Boulevard and Weeks Wash after the flooding. That's when he would sadly find Adrienne's partial remains in a desert wash, about 30 miles from where she had vanished in Tempe. The police then spoke to the cab company that was hired that night, and the driver was determined to be Tom Simon Jr., There were a few suspicious reports regarding his behavior, with a woman saying he had once pulled out a hacksaw from his trunk. In another incident, a tip mentioned a woman screaming in Tom's apartment. However, there has never been any evidence to connect him to Adrian's death. Brian Patrick Miller, a.k.a. Zombie Hunter, was another potential suspect that the police looked into. He had previously been accused of killing two other people, both found during the early 1990s. Reports indicated that he had attended a party about a mile from Adrian's house that night, and he worked close to where her body was ultimately found. However, there was no DNA evidence to link him to her murder. As for Fran, he has reportedly been very cooperative, passed a lie detector test, and was cleared through cell phone records. Police believe her body was dumped elsewhere and later washed downstream to the location where she was found. As of January 2023, no one has ever been arrested for her murder, and this case remains unsolved. Brandy Lynn Myers was born on March 13, 1979, and lived in an apartment complex in Phoenix, Arizona. At the age of 13, Brandy was also a sixth grader at Sunny Slope Elementary School and was described as a very trusting, naive, sweet girl who had been diagnosed at some point with brain damage. At about 8 p.m. on May 26, 1992, Brandy was last seen in the Sunny Slope area of Phoenix near 51st and Hatcher Streets. Brandy was out seeking donation pledges for a Bookathon fundraiser for her school and was seen at about 7 p.m. at Smitty's store near Cave Creek and Hatcher Roads. At about 8 p.m., she was seen knocking on a door just two doors down from Brian Patrick Miller's residence. Miller is now known as a serial killer dubbed the Canal Killer and has a record of violent offenses dating back to 1989 when he stabbed a woman and was charged as a juvenile with attempted murder. Miller lived three blocks from Brandy's home and she and her younger sister walked by his house on a daily basis. This was the last time Brandy was ever seen again. Miller's ex-wife, Amy, said he once claimed to her that he had killed a girl whose circumstances seemed similar to Brandy's. 
Amy said that he told her some teenage girl had come to the door and she was trying to deliver Girl Scout cookies or something similar to that, and he hadn't ordered any, but he told her to come inside for a minute. And when she did, he attacked and killed her. Amy said Miller then told disturbing details of how he disposed of her body. Amy said it wasn't the first time Miller had confessed to violence, but said she always thought the stories were just to intimidate her. The day after Brandy's disappearance, while authorities were searching for her, they shockingly found the remains of a slightly older girl in a rugged desert area in the central Arizona Project Canal. Sadly, it would take nearly 20 years to identify the body as belonging to 16-year-old Shannon Amuk, who had run away two months earlier. Shannon was born to a 16-year-old mother who later turned her over to state custody. She was placed in a foster home in Flagstaff, Arizona at the age of three, but they said she was a very troubled child, and by the age of 12, they decided to return her to CPS. Shannon then began being bounced between foster homes and group homes. Before her death, she had run away over 40 times in one year. When Shannon went missing from a group home in 1992, no one was looking for her. No one had reported Shannon missing, and she was buried as a Jane Doe until they matched her DNA to her birth mother in 2011. Interestingly, Shannon and Brandy looked similar and were close in age and Shannon was found only a few miles from Brandy's neighborhood. Miller is considered a suspect in not only Brandy and Shannon's cases, but several others as well. In Everett, Washington in the year 2000, 14-year-old Victoria Mickelson was 15 minutes into her 40-minute walk to the school bus stop. It was a different route than she was accustomed to, and she had chosen that route because a girl at her stop had been picking on her. So, Victoria decided to walk to the bus stop near her best friend's house. She cut through on the inner urban trail just after 6 a.m. and had already passed by a few joggers. It was why she wasn't immediately alarmed when she first noticed the man enter the trail from a wooded patch of land to her right and follow her for several minutes before finally attacking her with a knife. As he lost control of the knife, she grabbed it, and after a few moments of struggling, the man told her he wouldn't hurt her if she gave the knife back, and she shockingly did. Instead, he used it on her several times, strangled her, and placed her backpack under her head as a pillow. Thankfully, she was saved by a bystander and required extensive surgeries to survive. Victoria worked with a sketch artist and described a young, white man with long, stringy hair and days-old scruff. Police presented her with books upon books of possible assailants, but she was never able to identify her attacker. Then years later, she told the same story to the Phoenix police officers who showed up at her door. After being shown a photo of Miller, she said she was 95.5% sure he was the one who attacked her. Authorities said Miller was charged in a 2002 stabbing of a woman in Everett, Washington, but was acquitted after saying the woman tried to rob him. However, the Washington state case didn't require him to submit a DNA sample due to the acquittal. He would then later move back to Arizona. Detectives focused on Miller as a suspect once again in late 2014, after a forensic genealogist ran the DNA sample found on Angela Brasso and Melanie Burness's bodies against public ancestry databases and came up with the surname Miller. 
17-year-old Arcadia High School student Melanie Burness and 22-year-old Angela Brasso disappeared 10 months apart around the time that Brandy disappeared. They were last seen riding their bikes near the Arizona Canal in Phoenix, and their bodies were found in the canal. Miller was known in the area to locals and the police because he drove a decommissioned police car that he had painted with the moniker The Zombie Hunter, a character he often cosplayed. Miller would dress up in these elaborate outfits and pose with people on the streets of Phoenix. There are even pictures of him posing with local police officers. To verify the DNA belonged to Miller, a detective surveilled Miller for a couple of days before devising a ruse to get him to a North Phoenix Chili's restaurant. There, police seized his dishes and utensils in the hope of obtaining a DNA sample. A DNA sample Miller left on a clear plastic mug was matched to the sample found on both women's bodies. In January 2015, Miller was arrested by the Phoenix police. At the time of his arrest, Miller was divorced and living with his teenage daughter near 9th Street and Mountain View Road. Six years after his arrest, Miller's attorney argued that his client was in a dissociative state during the killings and claimed he was innocent by reason of insanity due to childhood trauma. Two other women had survived his alleged attacks in 1989 and 2002. Meanwhile, police asked the prosecution to charge Miller with Brandy's murder as well, but prosecutors declined, citing insufficient evidence. Brandy's younger sister, Kristen, created a petition on change.org urging that Miller be charged with her sister's murder, and I will put the link to the petition in the description below if you wish to sign it. Maricopa County DA has said this case was reviewed again in 2016, but determined there is no likelihood of conviction due to lack of evidence, which is why Miller has not been charged specifically with Brandy's death. The fact that Brandy's body has never been found further complicates the process. It has been over 30 years since Brandy went missing, and as of January 2023, Brandy would be 43 years old. However, without enough evidence to prosecute her suspected killer, the case remains unsolved. Fiona Yu was born on October 15, 1975, and was described as a sweet and trusting girl. At the age of 21, she was a senior at Arizona State University in Tempe, Arizona, where she was focused on earning an accounting degree. Fiona worked part-time on campus in the alumni gift shop and was close to becoming the first person in her family to graduate from college. She also lived off-campus with a roommate in an apartment at Lemon Street and Terrace Road. Throughout the 1990s, ASU had a handful of students go missing, and some were even found murdered. And in 1997, multiple students had been indecently assaulted. On August 4, 1997, Fiona left campus, heading toward her apartment at about 5 p.m., and was seen headed home on her bicycle by a neighbor. Sometime between 5 and 5.30, Fiona was indecently assaulted and strangled to death inside her apartment on the second floor. Fiona's roommate returned to the two-story apartment about 5.15 p.m., but stayed on the first floor until about 6 p.m. She began feeling very uneasy, like something was wrong, so she went upstairs to the second floor. There, she would find Fiona dying from her injuries. 
Her roommate called 911, and Fiona was rushed to the hospital, but sadly succumbed to her injuries shortly after arriving. In September of 1997, 16-year-old Derek Wood and 17-year-old Lee Comier Jr. were arrested and charged with attempted murder, burglary, kidnapping, and indecent assault of two other students that occurred weeks after Fiona's death. Investigators immediately considered Comier a suspect in Fiona's murder, but DNA from those crime scenes didn't match the DNA found at the crime scene where Fiona was attacked and murdered. With no other leads to go on, the case would sadly go cold. 20 years later, in 2017, with help from Parabon Nanolabs, authorities were able to use snapshot DNA technology to profile Fiona's killer. The technology created a composite image that showed the suspect was Hispanic with light brown skin, brown eyes, and black hair. That digital composite also matched a similar description given during another indecent assault that occurred nearby and within a few days of Fiona's murder. As a result, authorities believe the same suspect committed both crimes. With the snapshot created, hopefully they will soon find a suspect, but as of January 2023, this case remains unsolved. Ella Mae Begay was born on July 21, 1958, and lived in Sweetwater, Arizona, and was well known to the locals as a weaver of traditional Navajo rugs. At the age of 62, she was living alone in a rural area 10 miles off the highway, and one of her daughters lived about 50 yards away. Ella had previously gone without electricity in her home, using only oil lamps and candles for light, but had recently installed solar panels. On June 15, 2021, a man busted into her daughter's house, and her daughter hid in her bedroom and watched the man walk over to her mother's home. Soon after, at around 2.30 a.m., her mother's truck was seen pulling away from her home. Ella was described as a cautious person, and her family said it would have been very uncharacteristic of her to leave home in the middle of the night. However, she has never been heard from again, and the door to her home was discovered to have been kicked open. Her daughter reported her missing that same day. Ella Mae disappeared along with her silver 2005 Ford F-150 pickup truck with a license plate AFE-7101. Investigators believe Ella Mae was the victim of foul play, and her case is being investigated as a homicide. 21-year-old Preston Tolth was a person of interest in the case and had lived near LMA. He was arrested two days later on unrelated charges of battery against a family member and was questioned about LMA's disappearance after his arrest. LMA's niece, Seraphine Warren, has been a powerful advocate for her aunt, and she and her family launched their own search. Seraphine walked more than 300 miles from Ella May's home to Window Rock, Arizona, the Navajo Nation's capital. She also walked 2,400 miles across the U.S. from Arizona to Washington, D.C. in order to raise awareness for not only Ella May, but for other missing and murdered indigenous women. As of January 2023, Ella May has never been found, and this case remains unsolved. June Goodman was born and raised in Snowflake, Arizona, and still lived there at the age of 66 in a rural home with a long gravel drive. 
She was described as someone who was always cheerful and had a positive outlook on life. In 2003, she was a mother of four and had 18 grandchildren and was a great-grandmother of seven. She worked as a rural mail carrier and was planning to retire in the summer of that year. On the evening of March 28, 2003, June had dinner with her sister, Pat Fawcett. Then, on her way home, she stopped at Ed's Market, bought snacks at about 8.30 p.m., and then returned home. June was scheduled to work on Saturday morning, but failed to show up. Her co-workers were immediately concerned because June was a highly reliable employee who always arrived early. However, when they tried to call her at home, they received no answer, so one of her co-workers started calling members of June's family. When they reached June's sister, Pat, she immediately drove to June's house to check on her. When her sister arrived, June's work van was found parked outside, and the sliding glass door to her home was open. When she entered the house, June was nowhere to be found, but the snacks she had purchased the night before were inside the home, and there were no obvious signs of a robbery or a struggle. June's purse, wallet, and all her jewelry and other valuables were untouched. All of June's shoes were accounted for, so if she left the home, she would have been barefoot or only wearing socks. Investigators noted that it appeared June had been sitting in her recliner watching television immediately before she disappeared. From where she would have been sitting, she would have had a perfect view of the gravel road that led to her home. Detectives believe she likely saw a vehicle driving towards her house and got up to get a better look. They believe she then went outside through the sliding glass back door, perhaps to greet someone. Since the door had still been open when Pat arrived at the house that morning, it appeared that June had never made it back inside her house. Because there were no signs of a struggle outside, investigators wondered if June had willingly gotten into someone's vehicle, perhaps assuming they would talk for a while. They couldn't find any footprints in the dusty gravel, and it was impossible to tell which direction June had gone after she walked out her back door. A few days after June went missing, officials announced that they believed she had been abducted, although they didn't release any information on how they had come to this conclusion. Her family announced they were offering a $100,000 reward for information leading to her safe return and pleaded with the public for help in locating her. Investigators soon learned of a local man that June had an altercation with on her mail route the year prior. The man, Patrick Kahn, lived on June's mail route and had entered the post office and threatened her life, and she told co-workers she was afraid of him. He had been irate when the U.S. Postal Service began to refuse to deliver mail to customers unless they used the designated addresses assigned to their homes. It seemed like a minor issue, but for some reason, he was not having it. After repeatedly refusing to use his designated address for correspondence, Khan had angrily confronted June about the fact that his mail was no longer being delivered. However, Khan was allegedly out of state when June went missing. Another possible suspect was a TV repairman who had come to June's home the previous month and had returned her TV still broken. June said the man was acting strange and that she was afraid of him. The TV repairman was later interviewed by police in May when he was in prison on unrelated drug charges, but again, detectives couldn't find any evidence that he had been involved in June's disappearance. June is the cousin to State House Speaker Jake Flake and U.S. Representative Jeff Flake, 
but investigators could find no reason to believe the relationships were related to her disappearance. Law officers and family believe she was abducted, but they don't know why. As of January 2023, June has been missing for almost 20 years, and this case remains unsolved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.